0: Okay, we're picking up where we left off, our Steadfast series. So we're in the book of James, turn to chapter 4. We looked uh, two weeks ago at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, this section really breaks down to 1 through 10, maybe even 1 through 12. Uh, probably 1 through 10 is the best way to do it. We broke it down into two separate sermons because I'm limited on time and can't keep you here for like an hour and a half to talk through things. So we needed to. So now we're picking up the second half of this section, which means I need to refresh your memory about the first half of this section. The second half of the section is gonna be six through 10. So James chapter four, six through 10. Let's recap though verses one through six. The question that was asked is what causes quarrels and fights among you? What causes those divisions? The answer was our internal struggle leads to external struggles that results in the quarrels and divisions. you remember from two weeks ago, we talked about the cause being our sinful desires. Those desires could be broken down into uncontrolled desires, unmet desires, or ungodly desires, which leads James to call us not my brothers, but remember that harsh rebuke that he gives when he says adulteresses. He hits us really hard right there. He says to us that when we go after these unmet desires, uncontrolled desires, or even ask through prayer for ungodly desires, that we are adulteresses, spiritual adulteresses against God. The bride of Christ is committing adultery against the God who is the faithful God. And that should hurt us. That should cut us to the core. That should be an insult that we say, no, I don't want to be that person. And here he says the solution is grace through humility. You can be a friend of the world or you can be a friend of God. You cannot be both, so choose your friends carefully. James in verse six quotes Proverbs three thirty four: God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter also quotes this, we'll look at that later. So the question then is how do we make sure that we're under that group of the humble that God gives grace to? Well, James anticipating that command anticipating that we're gonna be cut to the core by his his adulteresses' call out instead of my brothers, by his calling us out on our desires that lead us to sin, our internal sinful nature, says God's gonna give grace to the humble. How are you gonna be among the humble? And he gives us 10 commands. Now remember, we talked about James last semester in the introduction. James is a guy that likes commands. Over 100 commands in this book. He continually hits us with hard demands. This is not a touchy-feely passage of scripture. This is a passage of scripture where he gives us one command right after another for a total of 10 between verses seven through 10 alone. And so today we're gonna look at those 10. Notice though that the section's bracketed by the emphasis on humility. In verse six, he tells us, but he gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, he comes back and he says, with a command, our last command we'll look at, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So today, if you get nothing else, if you tune me out, if you have to leave, if whatever happens, remember that before God, our constant state should be a state of humility. We should fall down on our knees before a holy and righteous God and cry out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful person. How can I stand in the presence of a holy God? And the answer is, in no way can you do so except by the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of the gospel. How do we make sure we're among the humble? Ten commands. Let's walk through them. I have them numbered up on the screen for you. In honor of the reading of God's word, would you stand as we read James chapter four, verses six through 10? But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God, this morning, we confess that we are sinful men and women and we bring nothing to you worthy of your grace. And God, we confess that we continually sin and give in to our sinful nature. And we need your forgiveness. We need to repent. We need grace daily in our lives. So Father, help us this day as we look at this text to be honest with who we are, honest with where we are, and help us, Lord, to grow closer to you, to draw near to God, to resist, Lord, to follow the commands that will allow us to receive the grace that you so freely offer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, and you may be seated. First command, submit to God. What does the word submit mean? It means to actively arrange under. When we think of the word submit, perhaps we think of a word that is a little more passive. Submit is kind of a passive activity, but it's not a passive activity in the New Testament. It is to arrange your life under the authority of something else, to accept or to yield to a superior. In the military, it would mean to line up under or to come in line with. It's not a passive command, but it's an active command. And when we look at this command, we have to make sure we understand that sometimes it's really easy to obey God. Sometimes God gives us commands or God gives us things in life, and it's easy for us to submit to God's authority or God's control. But what this text is telling us is that even when God asks us to do something that makes no sense to us, even when God wants us to do something in obedience that seems odd, that seems strange, that seems foreign, that seems like logic may be against, if God is the one telling us to do it, if we are convinced it is His will, we submit to God. We submit our lives and we in fact bend our will to the will of God. We are no longer in charge of our life. But as we submit to God, We say, God, you are the authority. You are in charge. Here is my blank check. Here is my empty sheet of paper. Here is my signature that says, you tell me my orders, and I will go. And God gives us orders, and God says, go, and we must submit and go. And God tells us at times that we want to go. You must stay and prepare. And we say to God, God, it's not what I want, but I will stay and prepare. And there are some times that God says, I'm not ready to give you the answer yet. Wait. And we all say with impatience, God, I don't want to wait. But God says wait, and so we submit our will to God's will and say, God, in this season of my life, I will wait. There are times that we pray fervently because we want certain things. We want things to happen in our lives. We want possessions. We want that special someone. We want God to heal someone. We want something to happen. And God works in our lives and asks us the question continually through our relationship with him. Will you submit your will to my will? And the thought comes to mind of Jesus in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but your will. And that must be our prayer as well. We relinquish control of our lives to God. How do we do that? We have to know what God wants us to do. How do we know that? We have to read the manual. We read the Bible. We read the Word of God. We meditate on the Word of God. We memorize the Word of God. We continuously read the Word of God. You never get through reading the Word of God in this life. You read it over and over and over again and you learn and you grow deeper in your love with God. Examples of submission. A worker submits to the boss to implement the vision that the boss has. An athlete must submit to a coach to do what the coach says do, or the coach will bench the athlete. Can you imagine the military? This word having military context, a private who goes in for basic training, who says to the drill sergeant, drill sergeant, I'm not going to do this your way, I'm going to do this my way. Could you imagine that private who walks in as a general walks by and says to the general, general, I think I know how to do it better than you know how to do it. I'm gonna do this my way. What would happen? I don't know, but I know it would be bad. I know it would be repeatedly bad until that private had been humbled to submit his or her will to the will of the drill sergeant or the general or until they had been cast out into eternal darkness of no longer being in the military, right? Right? You see the analogy there. One of the most famous songs, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. you probably heard that song. You, you may even like that song. That song's a catchy song. It's a good song. It's horrible theology. If you do it your way in the 80 or so years you have on this earth, you'll have an eternity to think about it separated from God who says, do it my way. And yet constantly in culture we celebrate in our minds, we celebrate without critical thought those things which tell us, do it your way. Have it your way. It's all about you, and it's not. It's all about God. And the sooner we learn to submit our will to his, the better off we will be. Command number one, submit to God. Command number two, resist the devil. This means to set oneself against. Take a stand against the devil to oppose or be on the defensive against the devil. Now, if submit seems too passive and is really more active of lining yourself up under, then this seems more active but is really more passive in the Greek text. To resist the devil doesn't mean we're going out and waging war particularly against him. It means we have the defenses up. It means we have the watchman on the wall. It means that we are constantly on guard, preparing our minds against the attack of the devil. There's a parallel passage I want us to look at in 1 Peter chapter 5. I have it for you there on the screens. Notice that he is also quoting from Proverbs here. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Look at what he says. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. There's a parallel passage there to verse 10 that we read today. Casting all your anxieties on him. Drawing near to God. You're casting your anxieties on him. You are drawing near to him because he cares for you. Because he will draw near to you. You are to be sober-minded. You are to resist the devil. You are to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the imagery here in our minds, we often think we're the lion. We're the animal that is the king of the jungle. But the imagery here is that the devil is the lion and that we are that pack animal. We are that animal that if we stray off to the side, the devil will take us, and that's why we need the local church. That's why we need believers to come around side and to encourage us. We are the animal that can be overtaken by the devil, so our defenses must be up. We must have someone watching. We must be on guard. Our ears must be at alert, and as that animal is, so are we to be spiritually looking for the attacks of the devil. It says resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. or to resist the devil. Diabolos, the name for the devil, the diabolical one, the slanderer, the one who can never be trusted, the adversary, the false accuser. So when we hear the things that culture brings to us, when we hear the lies of the devil, we should immediately think of the diabolical one who is seeking to destroy and to devour us. And we think through the biblical lens and we understand that we must resist the devil. We do not place ourselves in locations where we will be tempted to fall. We do not keep ourselves out at times when we know that we are weak. We do not put ourselves in positions of the things that we know tempt us the most. We have a strategy. We have a plan. We have a resistance that we have formed to resist the devil and all of the temptations that will come our way. Submitting to God, resisting the devil, these are two sides of the same coin. You cannot do one without doing the other. In Jesus's temptation, how did he resist? He quoted scripture. Deuteronomy to be precise. One reason we memorize scripture and internalize scripture and meditate on scripture is so that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind that scripture at those moments when we are tempted and that scripture will allow us then to take the way out to resist the temptation, to flee from temptation, to be able to resist and hold off to it. Too many people think that giving in to God, that submitting to God, that that, that you have to give up your freedom. But as Dr. Mack reminded us last week, you are either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to Christ. Only in Christ can you find true freedom. Command number three, draw near to God. Draw near. Draw near to God. To draw near is to move closer to a reference point. The reference point that James has in mind is God. What does this mean for us? It means we seek to know, to adore, to commune with, and to worship the one true God. Does this describe you? Have you gotten to the point where maybe coming to chapel sometimes seems more like a chore than it seems like an opportunity to commune with, to get to know, to draw near, to worship Do you cherish the opportunity or does it just become part of the mundane? Is it part of your routine? Do you value every opportunity together and hear believers encourage us with singing, praises to God, to hear the word preached, to let the spirit speak to our lives, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to grow us where we need to grow? Draw near to God. We often want the reverse. I often do. I want God and those feelings of loneliness to draw near to me first. But this says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We want to feel something. We want something emotional. And demonic logic would even tell you, you have to clean yourself up before you can go to God. Now, I don't know that the order is that important here in James and the list that he gives us. I don't know that he's given us a chronological order of what he thinks should happen. But I do think it's significant that here in this, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that that happens before he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. We know from other passages of Scripture, it's important for us not to think we can get good enough to get to God, but we go to God just like we are, hands open, humbled before Him, and we say to God, God, I repent, forgive me of my sins, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, then God cleans us up. You don't clean yourself up to get to God. If you do that, you will never get to God, as Kathy Freeze reminded us in her testimony last week. Repentance, prayers, Scripture, worship, Two weeks ago, when we were talking about the first part of this passage, I talked about Luke 15, the prodigal son, how he took and squandered all of the wealth to try to meet unmet, uncontrolled desires. In this particular section, drawing near to God, perhaps we see the second half of that parable, where the son, the prodigal son, decided he would humble himself, he would go back to his father, even his father's servants had it better than what he had, and as he humbled himself and he drew near to his father, how did the father respond in that parable? The father didn't resist him. The father didn't push him away. The father didn't cast him aside. The father, it says, an elderly man of stature, put all that aside and ran to his son, and he embraced his son, and he threw a party for his son. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Perhaps you sit here today in slavery to a sin in a dark moment, in a dark hour, wondering, can I tell anybody else about what I'm going through? And I say to you, yes. Tell somebody, shine light on that. The devil wants you to keep it private. God wants you to let others speak into your life. God wants you to draw near to him. God wants you to repent and to get over whatever it is that has you in bondage. It doesn't matter where you are in life, now or ever, at some moment in the future, God is always there. It's not about the depth of your sin. It's about the depth of his grace, and you can never be deeper than God's grace. Draw near to God. Fourth command, cleanse your hands, you sinners. James, still irritated with us. It's not my brothers. It's you sinners. This word, used over 20 times in the New Testament, almost every, if not every occasion, refers to lost people. This leads John MacArthur, as he studies through this passage, to say this passage is actually a salvation passage that James has given on how you can be saved. It offers a pretty good line of how you could be saved, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. If you're friends with the world, you're enemies of Christ. You're enemies of God. You cannot be an enemy of God as a believer and follower of Christ. Here, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Our outward actions, our deeds, the things we do, we are to carterize. We are to cleanse from ritual contamination or impurities. He probably has in mind the Old Testament ritualistic cleansing that took place to indicate that even the priests were sinful and needed to be cleansed before they went before a holy God. And here in this command, James is saying to us, you are just as sinful as the Old Testament priest and you need to cleanse your hands, you need to cleanse your actions, you need to cleanse the deeds that are taking place so that you will be right before a holy God. How do we cleanse our hands? It's through true repentance, a repentance that wants to turn away. It's through a humility that draws near to God, that places our desires and our will in submission to the will of God for our lives. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Command five, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Boy, James is irritated here, isn't he? Adulteresses. Sinners, double-minded. He says to us, even your inward motives, not your deeds, but your disposition. Where are you in your disposition? Do you find yourself oriented so that your life's trajectory is headed towards God? Do you find yourself oriented so that you want to get away with as much as you can get away with without getting caught? Do you want to get yourself as close to the world as you can possibly get and still skate by and make it into heaven? If that's your disposition, James says to us, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You cannot be double-minded. You cannot seek, as we talked about in James 1:8 last semester, to have one foot on that boat and one foot on that dock and the rocking back and forth. You're going to be unsteady, you're going to be unstable, and the longer you try to stay with one foot in the world and one foot living for Christ, one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock, the sooner it is that you're You're going to be in the waters of despair. You cannot live a double-minded life you must decide who you are going to be, what you are going to do, how you're going to live your life, and you have to decide it for yourselves. We can't decide it for you. Your faculty members can't decide it for you. Your RAs, your RDs, your discipleship group leaders, as much as they love you, can't decide it for you. Your mom and dad cannot decide your disposition for you. It is an internal disposition that you control with your mind, with your heart, whether you are going to place yourself in submission to the will of God. And here he says, purify your hearts, your motives, your desires, your disposition, have them oriented towards God. And if you're here this morning and that's not you, if you're here this morning and you know that you really are oriented towards the world, James is offering you a warning. He's saying to you, double-mindedness does not work. It ends in despair. It's like those waves. It does not last. He says, purify your hearts. And I plead with you today, decide who you want to be. Purify your hearts. Decide that you want to stand for Christ. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remove the contaminants. Make pure. It's also interesting that in James 4, 4, it's adulteresses. Here, in this, it's purify your hearts. You double-minded, the purity aspect takes place. All throughout the Scripture, we see similar passages. One of those is Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. Look at what it says on the screens for you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Draw near to him. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Cleanse your hands. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Purify your hearts. Let him return to the Lord. That he may have compassion on him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So you think to yourselves, I've got this covered. I'm going to do it my way. I understand what's supposed to happen. And Isaiah 55, 6 tells us even your thoughts and your ways are not close to God's ways and God's thoughts. They are so much higher. The only way we can live this life in a way that glorifies God, submit to him, submit to his will. To fall in line. Command number six. Be wretched. But that's a great word for you on Monday morning, isn't it? Be wretched. I don't think I'm going to start signing my email signature with that anytime soon. Be depressed. Feel miserable. Lament over your sins. Deeply penitent over sins. Godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You think about this. Sometimes you're sorry for things, but you're really only sorry because you got caught. If you'd gotten away with it, you'd still be happy that you did it. That's not what it's talking about. To be wretched is to have sorrow because you've sinned against God and you understand that your sinfulness is continued rebellion against the king of the universe. That your allegiance is now double-minded. That you are seeking to be in two locations. Your disposition is oriented the wrong way and you want to fall back in line in submission to God. This passage is especially helpful when we think about Judas. Some wonder about Judas and if Judas was saved at the end of his life. When Judas showed sorrow and threw back the money and didn't take the money, didn't want it, and they threw it down into the floor of the temple, and then Judas went out and hanged himself. Some says, well, does that sorrow work? Well, that sorrow is the same word for the sorrow of the world that produces death. It's not the word that is the godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation. Which do you have? Only you know. Others can seek to guess, but only you know. Are you sorry you got caught, or are you sorry that you sinned against a holy God? I would submit to you out of love for you, out of concern for you. There are some of you probably not living the life you need to live because you have yet to fully consider the consequences of your sin. Be wretched over your sin. Number seven and mourn, an expression of grief over death. It's typically how we use it. If be wretched identifies with the soul, mourning perhaps identifies with the spirit, then weeping perhaps with the physical, it says to us here, mourn. This past week while we were on a boat, we lost our black lab shadow. You see her on the screen there. So this has been a tough couple of years. Last year we lost Prince's. This year we lost Shadow. So when I came home on Sunday or Saturday night, I walked into the house. There was nobody to greet me. There was mourning. There was grief. I, I wake up the next morning and I get up as is my custom to go let the dog out. There's no dog to let out. There's mourning, and this is a pet. It's a beloved pet. It's a great pet. Don't get me wrong. I love my dogs. I, my, my dogs sleep in my bedroom with me. I love my dogs. They are treated better than some people are treated. And yet, it's a dog. Which, by the way, I probably will be getting a puppy within the next two months because it's way too quiet at my house right now. How many of you have lost animals? How many of you have felt mourning over those animals? You weren't glad they were gone. You, you felt the mourning. How many of you this semester, this year, how many of you this year have lost relatives? Grandparents, cousins, family members, you mourned, you grieved, your soul was down, you were depressed, and that led to a weeping, a physical expression of that inward moment. And that's our next command. He says to us, weep, shed tears, lament well, the inner sorrow working its way out to physical expression. Tears could be, could be seen as the pressure valve For mourning and the sorrow of the soul. Have you wept over your sin? When was the last time you were broken to weeping over your sin? And perhaps that's some indication of the last time that you truly felt wretched over your sin. Perhaps that's an indication of the last time you truly mourned over your sinfulness before God. The last time that that mourning and that sorrow to consider how wretched we are overflowed into physical expression of tears coming out before God as you confessed your sin. When's the last time you wept before God? Far too often. We just skate through life. We are on the Facebook news feed, taking all of our news in 140 character snippets, and we fail to deeply consider and ponder the things that have eternal significance. And I would submit to you one of the most important things that you can do is to think about your own sinfulness in light of the holiness of God, to think about the fact that my sinfulness. My sinfulness is the sinfulness that put Jesus Christ on the cross, that that cup could not pass from him because I had sinned against a holy God and I deserved death and Jesus came to this earth and lived a perfect life to pay my price. It's my sin that put him there. It's for my sin that he hung and he died, that he was naked, that he was spit upon, that he was cursed, that he had a crown of thorns, that he had to go to the grave. It was because of my sin. My sin is not a flippant thing. My sin is a serious thing. When's the last time that we truly were wretched and mournful and weeping over our sinfulness? We say we want revival. We pray for revival. I believe we do want revival. But revival comes when we realize how wretched, how sorrowful, how sinful, how much we should weep over our own sinfulness and rebellion against a holy God. Are you there? Or do you need to refocus and draw near to God? James knows that most people are not there. So in his next one, he says, number nine command, is is to be turned. But it is to let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to heaviness. Be turned. Be turned from the joy to mourning. Now, I don't get this passage wrong. This does not paint God as a cosmic killjoy. There is joy in the Christian life. There is joy when we gather here to worship together. There is joy living a life with fellow believers But what James is saying to you here, in this particular passage, is he is condemning that silly laughter of hedonism. The hedonist who only wants pleasures. The hedonist who doesn't consider God, eternity, their sinfulness, their purpose in life. The casual, common jesting. The entertainment of our minds with the junk food of the world. No deep contemplative thought. No thoughts of eternity, no heaviness, no mourning. We amuse ourselves to death. We entertain ourselves to death. We keep the television or the internet on, playing constantly. We put our earbuds in and listen to music so that our minds never have time to think about our own sinfulness. We entertain ourselves so much that our minds are constantly busy with trivial things of this world, and we never take time to ponder the matters of eternal significance. And James says to us, let that trivial laughter Let that locker room joking turn into mourning. And that false joy, that superficial joy, turn to a heaviness over your sin. This has no place in the presence of a holy God. When you encounter a holy God, you don't make silly jokes, you fall on your knees. You say, Woe is me. Command number 10. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the great spiritual paradox. We think in our minds logically, if I want to be exalted, what do I do? I toot my own horn. If I don't, who else will? That's what culture tells us. And yet, in a countercultural message, the scripture tells us don't toot your own horn. That's not how you advance. You humble yourselves. You humble yourself before God. You take care of the depth of your ministry, you take care of the depth of your influence, and you let God take care of the breadth of your influence. Wherever he places you, whatever he gives you, you focus on being a faithful steward, and you let God worry about how broad your stewardship may be. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. To be exalted, you must be willing to be humbled. This passage makes a great passage for what happens at Salvation. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves, and God will exalt you. Now, perhaps you're here today, and your salvation experience looked nothing like this. Perhaps your salvation experience was an emotional experience at a camp or something else, and and your life is really just muttering through, and I would say to you, talk to somebody to clarify your eternal state before God. This is the picture James gives us. Perhaps you're here today, and you would confess, you know, you're an immature believer. You're not where you need to be. You're not where you want to be. But you want to grow. You want to be mature. You say, give me some steps in discipleship. James says, here you go, Ten Commands. Ten Commands. Write them down and start living them out. So here are your application questions to take home. Application questions based off of this text. Where are you in your walk with Christ? Are you mature or are you not mature? Ask yourself these questions. Do I submit my will to God's? Yes or no? Am I submitting my will more to God's than I was last year? Do I resist the devil by constantly being on guard against temptations? Do I draw near to God? Do I desire to know God? Do I read his word? Do I commune with God? Do I have a prayer time? Do I gather with those fellow believers? Am I committed to the local church? Do I take advantage of opportunities together gather with others and to have deep, meaningful, eternal conversations? Do I worship him? Do I seek to cleanse my hands through repentance of my sins? When I sin is my thought, let's get away with it, or when I sin is my thought, God, forgive me, for I'm a wretched man in need of your grace. Do I purify my heart so that even my motives, even the meditations of my heart are pleasing before my rock and my redeemer? Does my sin cause me to feel wretched, to mourn, and to even weep before God? Do I flippantly laugh at my sinfulness? Do I boast in stories about my sinfulness? Do I have arrogance about the sinfulness of my past and the great sinfulness I have done? Or have I come to realize how wretched and mournful I should be over those actions that did not glorify God? Do I humble myself before God? Friends, this is a heavy sermon, this is a heavy passage. I've said to you often, I say it again. James, with all of his commands, will place a weight upon you that you cannot bear alone. Aside from the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living within us, we cannot bear this weight. So if this sermon has convicted you, I tell you, draw near to God. Humble yourselves. Reach out for the grace of the gospel. Embrace the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And let us all not be double-minded. Oh God, I come before you today and I confess that this is a flawed messenger delivering to the best visibility your word. So Lord, if I've said anything here today that doesn't fit with your word, may they just forget about it and move on. But Lord, if there are truths here that need to be pondered, may you allow those to stick in our minds. May you allow those to weigh on our hearts. God, may you allow us to honestly look at who we are and where we are in light of who you are. And God, help us to edify one another and to glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You are dismissed.